the fear of the increase tariffs forced everyone to kind of put all ordering on hold, like the whole industry ground to a halt. Hey, you're 86. I'm Justin Myers, and this is a show about how bartenders handle bad situations. Hello, hello. Thanks for tuning in. Many of us, myself especially, wonder where to go next with our careers. One exciting option is to start an import business, but it's not without its challenges, particularly when international trade disputes happen. My guest today is Ian Adams. He's been in the industry for more than 15 years, and a couple of years ago, he and some colleagues started Merchants of Thirst, importing wines and spirits from Europe. He had a lot to say about what he's learned and how he's facing obstacles like the tariffs that were imposed on goods from the EU in October. Let's get into it. Yeah, yeah, with uh, Matthew Coase. Yeah, yeah, really nice guy. Um, so anyway, I think uh, I wanted to talk today about being an importer. Yeah. Um, and I think when people start their own business, kind of the 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 theme I see really regularly is is people are like very passionate about whatever the thing that they're doing is. Um, so maybe you could tell me a little bit about how you fell in love with these wines that you're importing and um, and how that keeps you going. Wow, that's a big question. Um, well, I mean, I think there are two kinds of entrepreneurs. There are the ones who, you know, find their passion early on and then work really hard toward building a business mm-hmm. using that passion. Uh, and then there's folks like me that are a little bit more opportunistic, um, where you know I fell in love with uh, food and beverage and the hospitality industry, and I fell in love with a, a handful of wines and spirits, um, and I wanted to continue uh, exploring that professionally. And after you know 13 years of restaurant management, you think maybe it's time to branch out a little bit, <laughs> um, and really being an importer was never a part of my initial plan. It was an opportunity Mm -hmm. that came up um, and it seemed like a really great way to stay uh, connected to the industry and really pursue my educational passions because that's Mm -hmm. really what it is. Um, I like teaching and I needed a way to finance that teaching because nobody's, mm. you know, nobody's paying for staff trainings, right, and right, right, educational right. seminars. You know, you have to find a way to make money while being invited to do that part of the job. Ah, I see. Um, so what was, what was the actual decision like where, you know, you were managing, you're managing bars and restaurants and then, um, how did you decide like, all right, this being an importer, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, like I said, it was an opportunistic decision. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I have two incredible uh, business partners. Mm-hmm. Um, and the three of us got together and said, how are we going to, you know, make these wines work? And how are we going to, you know, fund these passions that we have in education and sharing? Um, and we decided that starting an import company in, in California would be the best way to go about that. Mm. Um, it'd be a way for all of us to, you know, further our individual passions while also hopefully someday making enough money to get by. (laughs) 
And so far, have you been able to um, continue with your passion for education? Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, I do staff trainings as often as possible. Um, yeah, I've taken I've taken your uh, your Sherry class before. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, so I do that as often as possible. I'll be uh, teaching a class up at the Culinary Institute. Oh wow! Um, as part of their uh, what are they calling it this year? The Summit for Beverage Professionals mm-hmm. used to be the Sommelier Summit, mm-hmm. um, but it's like a, a three day series of lectures and seminars and I'll be on a panel with uh, Lucas Paya and Jordan McKay uh, talking about Sherry. Nice. And it's really exciting. Nice. So after you guys decided we're going to do this, this business, what, what, what were kind of the first steps that you had to take to, to start this? Well, I mean, if we're going to try and make this interview into a, you know, a, step-by-step do-it-yourself import company podcast, then I might be the wrong party to interview. (laughs) Um, A lot of the more technical stuff was handled by my partner. Mm -hmm. Um, But really, I mean, the first step is just deciding to do it and throwing your full weight behind it Mm. Um, and just being super supportive of one another and and, uh, finding a way to, to get through every single hurdle because... Mm-hmm. Even the easy stuff is hard sometimes. Yeah. Um, well, I think that would be a great thing to talk about. Um, that that right there, because that's, you know, I think you can read about how to write a business plan and like right. all that kind of stuff. But um, how did you do that? How, what was it like to to throw, you know, everything in to this? Because um, I imagine you still had other commitments. Yeah, um, and I still do. I'm 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 similarly fortunate that I still have uh, you know a full time job with. 15 Romolo. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been there nine years and, uh, I guess that, uh, that long tenure, um, has given me some really fortunate opportunities to have an incredibly flexible schedule Mm. where I can tackle my tasks at hand at the bar and then use all the rest of my spare time and energy, (laughs) um, to work on building this, this small company. Um, but it's it's scary to you know do anything to change anything. Yeah. So just getting over that fear and saying you know failure is absolutely a possibility and I'm okay with that. Mm. Um, that's really the hardest part about starting any business or mm-hmm. making any big life change. What What were some things you did to help get through that fear or help get past that? Um, sometimes I drank too much, um, and other <laughs> times more productive times, I think I made sure to find time for myself mm-hmm. and things that weren't work. Cause when you have two or three or multiple jobs, um, you tend to take your, your personal time for granted. Um, so I made sure to, to really maximize and make a point every day of, of taking some time out for myself, whether it was to, you know, go for a swim or to sit and meditate, or to, you know, go see a, a jazz show. Yeah. Um, and just really prioritize that time, even if it's just a small block of time every day. Mm. So that's a that's a thing that comes up a lot, um, actually, in, in a lot of my interviews, not just about starting businesses. Uh, and I think a lot of people in this industry, myself included, are like doing too many things. You know, like I have this podcast, I work for two bars, you know. Um, how do you balance all those things? As soon as I figure it out completely, I'll 
I'll let you know. <laughs> um, but I think that it, it's a it's a common cycle, um, especially in this industry, in the service industry, where you know you almost brag about how hard you work and how haggard you are. Yeah. And how many hours you're putting in? It's it's like a, a badge of armor to be completely beaten down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, you know that that's something I think that needs to be addressed on a larger scale. Um, but you know, just talking to your friends and and trying to make sure that your priorities are where they should be. You know, San mm-hmm. Francisco is obviously a tough town to survive in. Um, cost of living is high, um, and so there's a necessity for a hustle and a side hustle and a side side hustle. (laughs) Um, but you have to make sure that you're still making time to live your life. Yeah. Yeah. There's only so many hours in the day. How do you organize that? So what is, I, I've, I've had kind of dreams of, of import export business, but I think I have this, um, romantic idea of going to faraway places and like shaking hands with, Bearded men in crowded markets. Uh, what is the day to day kind yeah, of I, actually I, like? I wish it was more like that, especially you know, reading you know like Kermit Lynch's book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's Adventures on the Wine Route. You know, you get this really romantic sense. He's just on this amazing solo road trip through the mountains, meeting really mystical people <laughs> in caves. You know, um, and ideally, that's certainly a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, because you do want to, you know, you, you have a a need to find things that aren't already available. Right. Um, and that's one way to do that. Um, but the, the majority of the work is not in acquiring the goods. Mm-hmm. It's in distributing the goods, right? The, the sales side of it is the less glamorous side that nobody really thinks about. Uh, and it's something that I was wildly unprepared for. Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, finding cool stuff is easy and buying cool stuff is easy if you have capital backing you. But then taking that inventory and sharing it with the world in a way that you can finance the next round of buying mm-hmm. is the the trickiest part. So the, the day-to-day is really spent strategizing and trying to get those goods, in this case, you know, wines and spirits, how to get those things into the hands of people who will appreciate them and share them down the, you know, further downstream. Mm-hmm. What did you have to do to learn those sales strategies and, and kind of build your skills around those things that you were not prepared for? Let's put a disclaimer out there and just let the world know uh, that I'm a horrible salesperson <laughs> uh, and, and probably shouldn't be giving sales advice uh, at large, but I can share, I suppose, some of my uh, misconceptions and missteps and hopefully help people avoid those pitfalls. Mm. Um, you know, I think when we started this business, I obviously, I had no prior sales experience and my naive assumption was that, well, as long as you can have unique products and sell them at a great value that it'll just do it on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, couldn't be farther from the truth. <laughs> um, you know, it really, it really takes work to get out there and get build enthusiasm around a thing that most people have never heard of. Like, you know, we're talking about a wine, a small winemaker from Cote Genois. Like nobody knows where that is. If you yeah. know where that is, you're a nerd and you probably can't afford 
to finance my business, you know, right? Right. And then um, not to mention the, the rest of the public can't even pronounce that in, the, <laughs> in this market. Yeah. And I, I feel like I should have known better going into it, uh, considering that, you know, my background going into this was primarily in the world of Sherry, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, up until the last 10 years or so, most folks in, in you know, your everyday bar and restaurant didn't really think about much, let alone know anything yeah. about. Isn't that that sweet thing that grandma drinks? <laughs> sure is. It's also a whole bunch of other stuff. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, uh, yeah, so you'd think that my my years of trying to be an advocate for Sherry and, you know, spread that gospel and the struggles of, of you know, sticking with that for the last seven, eight years um, would have informed my approach to sales in general. Um, but... It didn't, <laughs> um, and I just I, I just went into it thinking, you know, or hoping for the best. Mm-hmm. Um, thus far, you know, we've we've achieved pretty incredible growth, and, and we're very proud of, of um, you know the, the business that we've built so far, and we're super excited to be working with all the people that we're working with, both on the supplier side and um, you know our, our incredible clients. Um, but there's still a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of that is just individual work, like just being a, a better salesperson, being a better motivator of yourself and those around you. Um, it's a whole world of skills that I'm, I'm you know, really enjoying cultivating right now. Mm. Let's. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about building relationships because um, I think that's a big part of this business. Um, wh- how do you go about? building relationships both with your clients that you're selling to and these suppliers in Europe? Wow. Um, well, when you're, when you're talking about business and in, in purchasing and sales, there's a bit of uh, a heightened skepticism that's uh, inherent and implicit uh, that doesn't exist when you're just out making friends. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was never good at making friends in the beginning. Uh, and now to like try and translate the making friends skill into making friends and having them give you money mm. in exchange for goods and services, that's a whole other level. Mm. Um, but really it's all about, it's all about patience, um, and empathy. You know, I, I understand that most of the people I want to meet with and potentially sell to and work with, um, you know, everyone else does too. Um, they have a lot of people beating down their door all the time. And right. so just being patient and understanding and allowing time to pass uh, without presenting any sort of judgment or even allowing that to foster inside yourself is really mm-hmm. the the key, I think. it's You have to understand that these people have their own things that they have to do. You know, Of course. Of You're course. not the center of the universe. Um, and that doesn't make for a quick sale. But hopefully it makes for a long-term relationship. Mm. I imagine your experience um, managing bars and restaurants, uh, being on the other side of that, um, helped you to have empathy um, for those. What, what are some maybe other skills that you were able to bring from working behind the bar to this, uh, this new business? Uh, definitely informed the empathy part of what we were just talking about. Um, having been a buyer and having been 
you know, on the receiving end of a million emails and phone calls and <laughs> random knocks on the door and rolly bags coming through during happy hour. Oh, yeah. Uh, having rolly been on the receiving end of that for a dozen plus years, um, you know, it really in- informed what my approach was going to be, which was more of hopefully, you know, relationship building rather than just cold calling and, and, uh, you know, heavy handed deal making. Um, and that's, you know, that's all still very much a work in progress. You know, I manage restaurants for 13 years and I've been importing and selling wine for just shy of two years. So my skill set in this is very much still in its, in its infancy. And, and, uh, man, I would, I would love to come back and sit down with you in five years and see what's changed. Uh, I hope this podcast is around at that time, but (laughs) I would love to, even if it's not, (laughs) even if it's not, you can grab, grab coffee, but I hope it is too. I'm a big fan. Thank you. Um, what surprised you most about this process? Maybe two years in, um, what was the moment where you're like, wow, I totally didn't expect that. I think I was surprised most, most just by my own naivety. I thought, I I thought that I would just inherently be good at this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and so it was very humbling in the beginning to, you know, teach yourself that, that, that patience and that empathy that you thought would just come naturally. Um, that was surprising. Uh, the, the logistics of everything, uh, are incredibly tricky as well. Um, but not nearly as fun to talk about just the logistics of, of coordinating shipments and getting everything from point A to point B mm. um, and then from point B to point C without spending all your money right. in the process. You know, that that's a skill that I'm really working to cultivate. Luckily, my, my business partner is a, a master at uh, moving those Tetris blocks around. Mm. Um, so at least I have, you know, good people to lean on for the hard stuff. <laughs> Speaking of hard stuff and moving of shipments, we've um, big topic right now is these tariffs, uh, and I want to talk about how that affected your because you're right in the middle of that you import French wines. Yeah, and, um, how has it affected you so far? Uh, well, it's instilled a healthy, uh, maybe even unhealthy level of fear. <laughs> um, just the the notion that uh, you know a, a punitive tax can be imposed at any time regardless of its uh you know impact on on what the intention is like you know these tariffs are they're about uh what digital property taxes and or yeah and and, and, and like aerospace large industry. aerospace <laughs> companies and so we're going to tax wine and foodstuffs from the EU um, at an alarming rate, yeah. Um, just the idea that that hammer could come down at any time makes it really scary. But you also have to recognize that it's not exclusive to wine. You know, these yeah. these kinds of punitive uh, taxes can wreak havoc on any industry at any time. So there really is no there's no safe place um, in the in the you know the world of capitalism. Like you just have to go for it and and do your best and, and hope that you're both skillful and lucky. Mm. Um, but in terms of how it really impacted us and, and all of our friends who 
uh, are trying to make a living the same way, it really just slowed everything down. Um, mm. You know, the, the 25% tariffs on select goods that came through in October um, made it prohibitively expensive for us to continue some of our relationships, which is really sad because we've spent a long time uh, cultivating those relationships and celebrating the products that were coming along with that. Um, and then even in the places where we were able to continue, um, you know, just the, the fear of the increase tariffs forced everyone to kind of put all ordering on hold, like the whole industry mm. ground to a halt for a moment there. And it still, I mean, it hasn't recovered fully and, and I'm not sure that it will anytime soon. Uh, even just the threat of hundred percent tariffs on anything would make it difficult to, <laughs> to continue doing business and then later to rebound. Um, so really it's, it's slowed everything down. Nobody wants to, uh, you know, shell out a bunch of money to bring in some incredible new products uh, and then have a, a punitive tariff slapped on the cargo box when it lands in an American port. Um, you know, whether it increases by 25% or, or 50% or 100%, um, you know, for a lot of people that slashed all their profits from last year when those October tariffs came through. Oh, yeah. I and mean, no one was expecting it. You know, there, there's people I've heard that had like containers on the water. Yeah, exactly. That and that's, not that's what you're afraid of is, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you almost you, you don't put that container on the water because you're afraid of what will what'll happen while it's floating your way. Yeah. Um, and then some folks just, you know, got really unlucky with their timing and, and had things on the water when the 25 percent tariffs came through and you know, all along they thought 2019 was going to be their most profitable year yet, and then suddenly they have to pay 25% up front. Yeah. On top of what they already committed to paying for those products they're bringing in. It's just a, you know, a really scary thing. But hopefully, you know, people are being active and outspoken about it and writing and calling the, the U.S. trade representative and their, their uh, you know, Congress people and making sure that, um, small businesses aren't punished for large uh, trade disputes. Mm -hmm. One of the things I saw, that's actually one of the things I've seen um, since this, these tariffs have been imposed is all sides of the industry. It's, it's, it's one of the things that I really love about our industry is, is the camaraderie. And you see that on, on all sides, producers, distributors. Um, and I've really like, I've read some beautiful things about, you know, wine producers really trying to help, you know, oh, absolutely. giving discounts and, and that kind of thing. It's been really beautiful to see. Have you experienced that as well with the, the people that you work with? Definitely. Um, you know, especially the, the, the producers that we work with, uh, they understand that the victims in this situation are totally undeserving. And, uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of very compassionate talks between producers and importers and wholesalers and trying to find a way to share the burden while we weather the storm. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was a really uplifting moment uh, in this whole tariff saga was seeing how everyone came together to try and uh, make it work. Um, and then also, you know, all the individual small businesses, you know, we think we're all competing against one another. But when, you know, when you have a common enemy, you realize you're all just trying to make a living by 
sharing these things that you love. Yeah. Um, and that makes it much easier to come together as a group uh, and organize. Mm. So going forward, um, you mentioned that <laughs> this has instilled some fear of the hammer coming down, uh, not only with punitive taxes, but, you know, there could be other disasters, uh, you know, like your 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 sh- your ship that your containers on could <laughs> sink or something like that. I don't know. But yeah, pi- pirates are still a real thing. Yeah. Um, luckily, I'm not in the oil business. <laughs> Um, um, but how is this, um, how is this event, um, kind of made you guys think more long-term about how to weather these things if they, if they come up again? Well, for me personally, uh, it kind of comes back to that camaraderie that we were talking about. It, it's, it's actually been very, um, uh, heartening to see all of these different small companies come together and support one another, uh, despite being, you know, quote unquote competitors. Um, so seeing the the community in action uh, has made me much more hopeful for um, you know the long term growth and success of all these small companies. Uh, I think working together on these you know big issues makes us all stronger individually. Um, so that has me feeling very hopeful um, for the the long any long term threats. So where do you see you guys going next with this company, with this business? I mean, long term, we would love to have, you know, a bit more stability. Um, even short term, I'd love to have a bit more sp- stability. <laughs> but uh, what does that mean exactly? Um, just a, a, a baseline revenue that allows for some flexibility. And if something, uh, you know, catastrophic were to happen... Uh, like a, a tariff being imposed while we had a container on the water, mm-hmm. uh, you know, having enough revenue and reserves to be able to weather that storm individually, um, you know, that's that's the goal of any business is to be able to to handle the the bumps and hurdles. And thus far, we've been very strategic and also very fortunate um, in the little bumps and hurdles that come your way as a small growing business. Um, I don't think any of us really set out to get rich mm-hmm. um, as small, you know, natural organic wine importers. <laughs> that seems um, to be a theme in our whole industry. You know, yeah. starting a restaurant or whatever. No, nobody's <laughs> like in, do this nobody's in this to get rich. We just want to, you know, be able to finance our passions. Yeah, that's uh, a beautiful that, thing. I think it is. It is, and it makes getting up and going to work every day a lot easier. Mm. Um, you know, when you when you really believe in in what you're selling, whether that's wine or comedy or uh, you know digital property, whatever mm-hmm. that is. Uh, but if you really believe in the way that you're generating revenue, uh, then it makes it much easier to to get up and motivate every day to do it. Mm. Um, so before we go, I would really love to hear if you have it a um uh, I mentioned that like fantasy idea of being in faraway places. Do you yeah. have a Do you have a quick story you could tell about uh, meeting some winemaker somewhere in some exotic place? We could talk about uh, maybe my my first visit to Jerez, mm-hmm. um, my first visit to Sherry Country. Um, it was uh, something I'd been planning for a long time, and 
I was very arrogant about it and I insisted on um, planning the trip on my own using my own wits and devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I scheduled a bunch of meetings with winemakers and winery tours um, and places to stay and ways to get around. And I put together this whole itinerary um, and it was, I was with uh, one of my best friends and uh, the two ladies that we were dating at the time. It was the four of us traveling around Spain. And uh, the very first day of winery visits, um, my brilliant itinerary uh, that I put together without consulting any experts uh, <laughs> suggested that we take the train to Jerez and then walk uh, from the train station to the winery, uh, which on a map appeared to be very feasible. You know, we're San Francisco people. We walk everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, what the map did not uh, tell me is that while it was a relatively short distance, uh, it was the winery is located at the highest hill in the entire region <laughs> at, at, the, at the top of the mountain, basically, uh, and that it was going to be 110 degrees out and just mm. blisteringly dry heat. Uh, and we marched our way up the hill and uh, uh, somewhere around halfway, uh, I think I, I lost a best friend and, and our, our two lady companions had all but given up hope on the rest of the trip. Uh, it was looking real bleak. Um, and, but we persevered uh, and we made it to the gate and my buddy Alvaro led us into the winery and we stepped into our first sherry bodega and the first thing you notice, you, you just get hit with this wall of that pheno manzanilla yeasty aroma, just mm-hmm. more pungent and intense than you've ever smelled in a glass. And simultaneously, the temperature drops about 35 degrees mm. and it's cool and humid. And you're just hit with this wave of relief that saved, you know, four friendships that day. <laughs> uh, and now every time I stick my nose in a glass of sherry and I smell that, that yeasty aroma that's so pungent and, and unique, uh, I experience that same wave of relief over and over and over again. Um, and this was, you know, seven years ago or so. Um, and so it's, it's moments like that where you have like a real visceral reaction to a thing that stick with you. It wasn't, you know, like, mm. I met this bearded man in a cave that you remember. It's like the way that he shook your hand or the way that he looked you in the eye when he told you a story. Those are the things that you, that you remember, the, the things that make you feel something, mm. um, not necessarily the things that make you think something. Yeah. And I imagine that's a really, uh, I've had experiences like that myself. Um, and it's really cool to try to, to share that with others through these products. Like to share that feeling with your customers because it's like all that stuff is in the glass, you know. It's it's hard to see sometimes, but you can you can bring it out for other people as well. And it's really yeah. beautiful. It's all about telling cool stories. <laughs> if you can tell cool stories and relate them to the you know, the flavors and the products you're talking about, then people will remember. Mm, Especially sure. if you look them in the eye and shake their hand. <laughs> for sure. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's my you. pleasure. That was Ian Adams. I've talked to a few people now about starting businesses, and one thing that they all seem to have in common is that they face obstacles that they couldn't predict. It's really important to keep that in mind. 
No matter how well you prepare, you will inevitably face unexpected challenges. But that's all part of the fun, right? That's all for this week, but stay tuned for more. Make sure to check us out online, your86.com. That's Y-O-U-R-E-8-6.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time.